Wait, okay, how do you pronounce it? I've always pronounced it Cthulhu. Is it Cthulhu? I have, I have no idea. I, I mean, I, I don't know. There's no way to pronounce it. It's not in English. I've got an idea for your kid's Halloween costume. Uh, she's gonna be Raven from Teen Titans, so we're, we're good, dude. Throw it out. I've got a better idea. She's going to be Raven from the Teen Titans, so we're good. Roman, do you worship your family? I mean, those are kind of strong words, for sure, but, uh, yeah, sure, you know, they're my everything. That's why you need to dress them up as octopus gods. Huh. Because you should really be worshipping the almighty Cthulhu, the octopus god of the H.P. Lovecraft mythos. Right, no. I, I think we're just going to stick with the Teen Titans. For today, we're sticking with H.P. Lovecraft, specifically manga creator Gutanabe's take on the famous novella At the Mountains of Madness. Ooh, wow. Creepy Japanese comics. Did not see that one coming. No one saw what was coming in the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> All right, well, anyway, Lovecraft needs very little introduction, probably, but Gutanabe has actually done a fantastic job translating many of Lovecraft's stories into comics. He was nominated for an Eisner for his collection The Hound and other stories. But At the Mountains of Madness is a much longer adaptation, broken into two volumes. Tanabe's work is intensely cinematic, so it might be perfect for those wishing they could see the cinematic adaptation that Guillermo del Toro has always wanted to do, but so far hasn't been able to. Now, the story follows a group of Antarctic scientists who, during their expeditions, stumble upon... Well, you can probably guess. And while Lovecraft himself has been elevated to legendary status in the annals of American horror fiction, there's a lot to be said about whether his work holds up or not. So, Ruman, as a big horror fan, what did you like about this, and what did you find wanting? I actually really enjoyed this, and it wasn't that scary. <laughs> like, I, 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 there's something about Japanese manga that really gets mountains. I'm transported. <laughs> no, I'm, I, you missed the episode when you were in a Korean gulag, but some of the gods. Um, I, just, Japanese manga and mountains, man. I love it. And I hate to say it, like I was more enamored, and I, I'm a big fan of Shackleton. I'm literally staring at uh, a map of Antarctica in front of my desk. I I have a comic adaptation by Nick Bertozzi of Shackleton. I've been to Antarctica. So I was just like, oh, cool, sweet, mountains and explorers. And I guess mystery. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, it just felt like a pretty good episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. I uh, This didn't feel like horror. I, I There were horror elements. Uh, there were people acting madnessy <laughs> as they went up the mountain making irrational decisions. But by the time we got to book two where everything kind of unveils itself you know it's like okay cool alien planet let's go i feel like the first volume is definitely more horrific because you see very early on the the what happens to uh the members of an expedition and then well yeah that's uh, right that's right they show like the bodies because it's like a flash forward the end of the film yeah 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 yeah, which is actually, I actually feel like it is a fantastic opening. You, you, these explorers stumble upon their colleagues who had kind of gone on ahead. 
only to discover their bodies hung up and dissected. And then you have this really amazing shot of these big black mountains, the mountains of madness. And then Gutanabe continues to pan out and out until you see like the earth. And then you get this big title sequence at the mountains of madness. It is incredibly like, it is a, an incredibly it's cinematic. It's, it's cinematic. Oh yeah. But yeah, it's actually, it, it, it's, and it's rare for me that comics are that cinematic, that have that kind of like, Oomph. And Dark Horse printed these in a very small volume. This is this actually kind of needs a prestige treatment. Well, we talk about this a lot on this podcast, Ryan. I, I have to ask, how did you read this? Do you have hard copies of this? Yeah, I, I have hard copies, but the the version I have is actually small. It's small. It's like smaller than a trade paperback. I'd say it's about maybe about five inches tall. The, the artwork is so incredibly detailed also. And, you know, Gutanabe has a tendency to like, zero in on specific details that you know you can kind of miss when the panels are so small one so thousand, i think this one thousand bigger yeah, yeah. I, honestly i wound up having to read this digitally the fucking library couldn't get these comics in time for me and i i really think that took away from me. literally the, the cinematic title scene at the mountain of madness like oh, split is it, was it divided? For, yeah. It was divided. And remember, we're reading manga, so it was right to left, even though the English is left to right. <laughs> I was like, wh- and I, I got it. I ultimately, I got it. And, but I was like, wow, this would have looked so much better, <laughs> like on the page. This, this is meant to be read as a book, as a Oh, tone. yeah. It's actually strangely impactful as you're turning the page. You know, like, I'm just, I'm still talking about the opening sequence. There's a shot of the explorer, the main explorer, Dyer, mm-hmm. kind of seeing for the first time the mountains of Madness, and you turn the page, and you see these big black mountains that are dwarfing the snow-capped mountains of Antarctica, and then you turn the page again, and you see how far back those black mountains extend. You turn the page again, it's like this huge overhead shot of Earth, and you turn the page again, and it's basically, boom, this huge title sequence at the mountains of Madness. And I've never... It's weird, but, you know, I mean, I've been reading comics a lot, but I've never really experienced something that cinematic and epic feeling in a comic before, where I'm just like, whoa, that's, that is an intense fucking sensation. I, I fully agree, and um, it is lost in the digital reading experience. Like, I, I actually do wonder if some of the distance I had from reading this, like, it didn't scare me, because that opening sequence of the carnage, it is supposed to be the thing that shakes you out of your comfort zone, but when you're just tapping on a tablet safely, like there's something about a page that when you're holding it, there's a visceral, you're, you're, it's going to sound weird to say this, but you're touching the story, you know? Yeah. No, 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 no. I think you're totally right. Yeah. And, and even you can be captivated on a page because turning the page takes a little bit of friction versus tapping Mm -hmm. a screen. It's just like, okay, next, next, next. And I found myself doing that. I, when I, and this is why I'm nine times out of 10, Ryan, I try not to read on tablets. I prefer to to hold and, and linger on pages, to flip back the pages, four pages, to try to understand, wait, did that guy say that thing? And mm-hmm. I do think this book would have disturbed me a little more were it not on an iPad. It's a different type of engagement, right? When you have an art- artifact, a physical artifact versus a digital screen that you're that you're manipulating. I guess you're, you know, it feels like you're in much more control in a way when you have like the screen. You, you, it's sort of like it's that glass that's distancing. You can always turn it off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Versus the book is always going to be there. If there's some, if there's a horrific image in a book, close the book. You set the book down, but you it's know still, that it's it's it's, it's, it's sitting next to you. It's not it's sitting. It's appeared. Yeah, 
And you know, you mentioned the pausing with digital. Another analogy, I'm thinking a lot about this because Dune is about to come out and Mm -hmm. I am probably going to go see it in theaters because when you are in a theater and the lights are out, you cannot hit pause. If you go to the bathroom, you are going to miss something. So you are held captive. And I, I think books and cinema theater experiences hold you captive versus video on demand or digital reading of comics. Um, and I'm sorry, I hate to litigate this thing beyond the book itself, but it really did diminish the experience of At the Mountain of Madness for me to read it on a tablet, which I normally do not do. Yeah, I mean, I think if any volume deserves like a mega-sized treatment, it's this It's this collection. It's this book because... It's IMAX sized. I feel like it's it's a yeah sort of absolutely. Like IMAX and there's and it's not it's there are so many full page spreads where I mean it's Antarctica. I I've been like the pictures that I took there, the things that I described cannot like I showed you a picture of an iceberg and I'm like Ryan that iceberg was the size of like a twenty story building. You don't understand and you can't you cannot fathom the size and the scale. And at the beginning of the book, never mind the natural horror. But just the entrance into Antarctica is this majestic Jurassic Park sort of experience. And then you get to the horror shit, and to kind of see it at that macro Machu Picchu kind of scale, it it deserves to be terrifying. It deserves to be phone book size. You mentioned you didn't find this book particularly horrific, and I have to admit, I, I didn't either. There's... Um... There's a literalism to it. Well, yeah, I, I think I think maybe part of it is that you know we the antarctic has been explored many times you can take a cruise there my gosh so there's the mystique of the antarctic is sort of gone now mostly it's in a way it's sort of like instead of the antarctic being this great unexplored territory that can kill you it's sort of like we must save antarctica because it's melting you know the our relationship to that continent has changed so much since when lovecraft was describing it and then the other aspect is that volume one, there is kind of the mystery of what happened to the murdered crewmen. And then volume two is much more exposition. It's almost like a Wikipedia entry of the Lovecraft monster universe, you know, where <laughs> they kind of go down and they're like, all right, first this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And so it feels more like it it feels less like a horror story and more about like, hey, there were these monsters before man developed on Earth and here's well, and, and, their backstory. And, and and this is the thing that bothers me about this manga interpretation. It's it's a very kind of literal experience. I have not read uh, Lovecraft in prose, but what I understand from this book is it was told in the prose from the perspective of one of the explorers, and so you're inside of his head unraveling these mysteries and even you know in book two when they they get to the temple or whatever it is and they have these like relief carvings on the wall that are explaining the history i've seen this in a cinematic experience i've been to the temples of angkor wat where you're watching the ramayan play out on the wall there is a better way to do that than what tanabe did that and he he illustrates it every once in a while but i just i don't know man Felt like an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation yeah, by the I, end. I will say that once you start explaining something, it loses its mystique and it loses its power. And the best Lovecraft stories are the ones where, like the Cthulhu, 
or the Cthulhu, whichever one, doesn't matter. Gesundheit. Uh, the, the best Lovecraft stories are where those creatures are just sort of hinted at. And not only that, but their impact on mankind is to basically to drive people insane. So you have the hero kind of losing his sense of himself, of just losing his own identity, because he's been somehow exposed to these elder gods. And so this, so you don't really see them, you just see their impact on humanity. And here it's sort of like he reads the hieroglyphs, and it's like, all right, here's the backstory. There was an alien space war on Earth. And then you're just like, ah, okay, so that's, that's good to know. But then suddenly, it really kind of drains all of these elder gods of oh, their power. Speak. Yeah, well, yeah, because they're just like they're just like ah, oh, okay, they're pretty, they're they're actually kind of mundane. It's just like you know, the well, Romans there's, fought there, these there, people, the Mongols there, fought these people. Yeah, there's even a point where the main exposition character is saying, oh, they're just like us. There's literally a moment where they say something yeah. like that. And but I want to back up a little. The things that was. I mean, look, beyond like the majestic spectacle of it and the detail of the art, the thing that really didn't land that I wanted to, because I I wasn't sure where it was going in both book one and book two, you know, you show a crew of scientists and explorers venturing into the unknown to solve something. And I, I don't remember any of their names, but white guy one and white guy two, like one of them is driven to solve this. I don't care what is rational or irrational. I am obsessed with learning this. And to a degree, I actually felt like these characters, are they literally being mentally controlled or mentally drawn in by the Cthulhu? Like, I yeah. was like, and then you just find out, oh, they were an obsessed scientist. Like, there was no, no mysticism. And one another one, the more rational one by the end, winds up going crazy. But it was the literally the mountain of madness. I was think that's what this book is called. I was like, oh, it's not about the monsters. It's whatever the monsters left behind are making these people crazy. And that wasn't what it was. It was just hubris and arrogance driving them to explore, which that's not as scary as something is controlling and pulling and urging them, um, because that's what it felt like. And then you find out that's kind of not what was going on. It's a different story. Why do you need the aliens, right? Yeah. Why do you need the monsters? At that point, like they're just a decoy. So well, yeah, no, I'll come, I'll come back to Junji Ito, right? The what was the spiral book that we read? Those people were Uzumaki. driven to Uzuma. Those people were driven to insanity by the monster, and that was yeah. scary as fuck. And this was these just are badass North Face explorer dudes who are driven and total assholes about it. The, the guy was just an asshole. That's all it was. Yeah, I, I think Lovecraft's stories are most interesting when when you start seeing people behave not like themselves and you start to see this strange transformation, sometimes psychological, often bodily, of people who seemed normal initially. Yeah, actually, that, that's, that's the Junji Ito thing, right? That's one of the reasons why I'm, I really was a big fan of Uzumaki. It's you start seeing people's obsessions take over and suddenly they're not like themselves anymore. Their eye, their pupils get dilated. They seem like drug addicts. And then there's this physical transformation that happens. And that's even more dreadful. And it all kind of comes back to this strange kernel of obsession that just unwinds and winds and unwinds until it just becomes monstrous. And 
that's not so much the case at, at the Mountains of Madness. In fact, the realization of who these creatures are is actually very, very mundane. Yeah, I'm scrolling back to the earliest page. So Dyer, I believe is his name, the one who became obsessive of the exploration. The first panel that they introduce him, he looks like an asshole. He says things that make him arrogant. No, I, I mean this. Sincerely. Oh, are you talking about the guy who got his face cut off? Whoever's the guy who like stole the plane and kept going. So ah, that's no, that's Lake. 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 Yeah. When you, when you first introduce Lake, like I, I don't know if it's page two sixty two. It's a manga book, but you know, about forty pages in, you meet him at the docks. Yeah. And he just looks like an arrogant prick. <laughs> like he he's has, like, well, he has he has a face of a cat. Which I think is sort of appropriate. And that's actually one thing I really do like about this this book is that he's uh, – Gutanabe is very good at differentiating between – The people. Facially. You read a lot of superhero comics. Oftentimes they all kind of look the same. They all have the same sort of cartoonish face. But well, well, here to be clear, what, good at To be clear, one guy doesn't have a beard, one guy has a beard, and one guy has a mustache. <laughs> but – to be fair, also, Lake has a very different, like, profile and a very – he has very distinct features that, you know, that, that distinguish him. You yeah, always kind of yeah, know yeah. who he is when Yeah, he based on his, his – his, uh, the thing I was criticizing about earlier, he does have that consistent kind of asshole look. He has the, the eyes kind of tilted down that cat-like stare. But, and so he's a man obsessed at all times, and I don't see madness creeping in. I just see the same obsession and the same drive. Yeah. And – I, it would have been great to make him be a sincere explorer. And, and again, I haven't read the original text, but the illustration of him is – I don't see any character change with him. I just see he gets into more and more trouble. He gets in deeper and deeper. I, I, I will say, though, like the depiction of the monsters, particularly the creatures with like star heads, that's really hard to make scary, isn't it? Like, okay, I've got this creature at the pillar. Star of the Conqueror, star. man! Star of the Conqueror! Haven't you seen uh, Suicide Squad? I Yeah, but Star of the Conqueror is basically like a parasitic starfish, right? These creatures are basically like big pillars with star heads. It almost feels a little bit cartoony. But the way they're illustrated, they actually they feel like really kind of creepy and weird and gross. And I, you know, I give, give Gutanabe like a lot of credit to designing these creatures in a way that makes them seem like something you just never want to touch. Absolutely. Well, and then, but, and yet these explorers aren't phased by it, right? Because they're in, they're in discovery mode, but, and I, I don't know if maybe that's because you're reading it from their perspective. It was icky, but the characters interacting with it weren't put off by it. So I was like, okay, gotcha. Like I, yeah. I wasn't scared. The thing that really? gave me, the thing that gave me stress and anxiety was actually the guys you said you were only going to explore for five hours you're going a little long you're going to miss the window to get back i was getting more stressed about the scheduling versus anything else that's really interesting isn't it though i mean you have monsters you have elder gods but what's freaking you out is hey you know it's gonna snow soon so you should probably it's it's the it's the <laughs> mundane but you know in a way i think that actually is that is emblematic of like of of Lovecraft of you know it's it's the mythos themselves isn't that scary especially when you start unpacking it and start revealing like okay so here's what's happening well it's even the, the more... even even the characters and the scientists are like we're geologists we're archaeologists this is the Star Trek of it there's like a distance kind of antiseptic sterile 
removal from it. They're they're not scared of this stuff because, oh, man, this happened a million years ago. These things are dead. They literally say that in book two. It's like nothing's going to happen. These guys have been long dead for millions and millions of years. Let's just explore this creepy temple. Well, of course, and of course, something does happen. But at this point, that's such a trope, right? The creature that is dead is actually quite alive and going to kill you. And that's exactly what what happens. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. Right. It does. They in book one, Lake brings it back to life or resurrects it or dehibernates it or whatever. And in book two, I mean, spoiler alert, they do escape. And the person who winds up being mad is not the one I thought would go mad from the mm-hmm. mountain. Yeah, that's actually that's one of the things that I wish had been done a little bit differently because the guy goes mad just like for he looks he see he look he's totally cool he turns around he sees something and again that would be more powerful I hate to say it it would be more powerful in prose because in prose it's left to the imagination. It's been a while since I actually read At the Mountains of Madness the the book and I do remember the way Lovecraft describes these creatures like a, it's like a pillar with a star fish like a star head and. That obviously leaves a lot of interpretation, but at the same time, the way I interpreted it was like, okay, it's a pillar with a star head. That's not particularly (laughs) scary. So seeing it illustrated actually was more effective to me. You know, I I guess maybe sometimes like Lovecraft needs to add like a little bit more into his writing in order to to, kind of guide you. Otherwise, it just feels so abstracted as to not be scary. That was my recollection of it anyway. So seeing Gutanabe actually illustrate these things was, for me, very, very effective. On the other hand, the psychological horror that – I forgot the name of the fella who went insane. Oh, Danforth. The psychological horror that Danforth experiences, it's, it's hard to kind of have that impact. You know, you know, it's, unless you're unless he's illustrating it in a way that makes you genuinely go insane, it's hard to kind of like see the mountains of madness and actually understand how they're causing any sense of ins- insanity. Gutanabi is very good at showing how epic and scary they look, but you know, obviously with prose, you can kind of say, hey, you know, you look at these, you go, you go into the mountains, it's just gonna like screw with your head. That's something that you really can't illustrate. <clears throat> yeah, and I wonder if, again, you, you can't take too many liberties in existing work, although he is visually. But in the dramatization of like the character development, I wonder if you could have done that. Like, I wasn't watching a descent into madness. The dude just snapped at the end. Yeah. Like, yeah, he just and, he just went crazy. And again, I. I feel like that would have been we you know we experienced everything with these guys as they were walking through the mountain as they were walking through the civilization as they were walking through the temples and they just weren't phased and maybe the yeah. drawings were supposed to phase me but the sheer magnitude of what they were discovering I kept thinking about that that's where one where some of my Star Trek analogy came from it's just like I don't know they just seemed completely unfazed by what they had uncovered yeah and, yeah no, I think I think that's it, right? He Danforth goes mad when things get the most mundane, right? When when things are uncertain and weird, when they're literally the about answers. to escape, when they're literally he's about like, to escape. Yeah, he's like he's like all right, this is kind of strange. And then once things get like more mundane in the sense, and you know, again, this might be our 21st century. We've kind of like consumed a lot of pop culture that was Lovecraft influence, so maybe we're more inured to it. 
But once, you know, for us, the story became more mundane. Oh, yeah, you know, there are these de- there are these monsters from the past. They had a civil war, and now they're trying to kill you. Stuff we've seen before. That's when this, char- this character goes insane, and so it actually but he, but hang on, to, to be clear, he doesn't go insane in that moment when his entire concept of the universe mm, yeah. is broken. He goes insane as they – so they get all the backstory. They read the Wikipedia on the walls. <laughs> and 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 then the giant monster penguins come out and then the awakened creature from book one comes out and then the other whatever they're called sophlopods or whatever come out and chase them and then they're being chased out and they're running and they're running and he's still good he's still good and right before they escape he turns around and he sees something and he goes insane and i'm like i guess maybe it was that horrible i in prose i could get that i just I don't know, man. I I I would have. Or and again, maybe that's all of these things were. I'm guessing from a, a narrative perspective, they were like cracking at his sanity, little bits and cracks in the glass over and yeah. over. But you don't you don't see it happening. You don't see the cracks forming. Yeah. Do you, so they reference a lot the the Edgar Allan Poe story, the narrative of mm-hmm. Arthur Gordon Pym. Have you have you read that one? That one's a good one. No, not at all. Oh, it's a it's so it's it's basically about a guy named Gordon Pym who stows away on a on a whaling ship, and things go really really wrong, and he and his his crewmates find themselves stranded in the ocean, and as things get worse and worse, their human your humanity starts to let's just say devolve. And so it's like full-on psychological horror as these people get more and more desperate. And I feel like in referencing, in referencing that in at the Mountains of Madness, you actually kind of expect, you know, this is going to be about psychological. Mm-hmm. I mean, f- for hell, for God's sake, the, the, the title's at the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> you expect exactly. it to be, you expect it to be about psychological horror, but actually that's. That's really not what this book is about. This book is about narr- providing backstory for well, and, and for, it's, for the it's Lovecraft the, universe. It's, it's the thing unseen that would have been more scary. Not just the psychological horror. I'm okay with there being a monster and a Cthulhu and a starfish head. I would rather it be. And again, it was modestly scary. When they kept not showing it and not showing it, and you're not sure what happened, how did these people get eviscerated? And then once you go into Wikipedia, the starfish history, it just it ruins, it robs it yeah. of the mystique. You know, it's interesting. Antarctica seems so much crazier and creepier before the monsters actually showed up. Even 1,000%. before the, the Black Mountains showed up, right? This sense of, oh man, it is cold. And you're going to freeze to death out there, and who knows if your planes are going to work. In fact, once they get to the Black Mountains, it's sort of like, all right, actually, it's it seems pretty temperate. <laughs> you guys well, that, and that's, right. that's the other thing. It, that's the whole – they had these planes, and every time, nothing went wrong. Like, their technology mm. worked every time. When they were they, – there were multiple times where they're, they're in, like, the city temple tower. This is the very end of volume two where it's like, oh, oh, hey, I, I can see the plane over there. Oh, okay. I know how to get yeah. out of here. So you feel safe. Like, you're like, it's cool. Yeah. We're going to make it back. Like, at no point – again, my biggest anxiety was, like, 
okay, is there five hours up? Are they going to have enough time to get back to the plane in time? Like, I was more concerned about the factual stuff than the actual impending no, sense there's, of dread. Yeah, there, the, the, the planes kind of keep them from being stranded, right? And the fact that the planes always work, or if they were broken, they're like, we, we can fix it, no problem. Also, <laughs> like, you carried those planes on that boat. That's, That's pretty impressive, actually. That's yeah, impressive. I was sort of like, I'd really like to see how they stored that. And it's sort of like, what? How do you store that and all your food? But you know what? Minor, minor details. Maybe it was like a <laughs> portal into the great void or whatever. Um, I, I, it was believable. That I could believe. They disassemble the plane and reassemble it on the other side. That's fine. They had, I mean, one plane. Okay, they had three planes, man. Did and, they have three they had, or four? Yeah, and they, but they had two ships. That's a lot. Of, I mean, it's still like maybe it's just a big ship. They're big know, ships. You know, have like, you ever have you ever seen these yeah. boats, man? Go to go to Norway and check out the Vasa. Those boats were huge. You know what? I don't know. I I I <laughs> I don't know enough about Antarctic exploration to know about the viability of keeping a two planes <laughs> in a boat. But yeah, that could just, uh, that could just be me. But you know what? I mean, like actually, the the other thing, the I kind of the the narrative of. Gordon Arthur Pym, the Edgar Allan Poe story. Please. There, the the environment was a threat. There was nothing supernatural about the environment. Is you're out in the ocean and yep. you don't have any fucking water and you don't have yep. any food and you are dying. And here, it it's again like the the most impactful stuff was Antarctica, the 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 hostility of that continent of that cold and then again like once you start adding monsters to it you 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 in a way kind of lose it's strange but you lose the threat well did you ever read and this is a bit cliche did you ever read life of pi i actually have not read life of pi i probably saw the emma shamalan movie was it emma shamalan or was it yes did you oh actually I i don't know that by the way i don't know who made the movie but what i would say so do you know what happens at the end really quick he eats some pie. <laughs> so the first time I read it in my early 20s on a backpacking trip, you know, it had just won like the Man Booker Prize and some Canadian backpackers like you must read this. I read it very literally. And it wasn't until several years later when I picked it back up and I understood the twist at the end. And that is the madness. Like and, and the reveal of the madness at the end in Life of Pi for all five of our listeners who have read it, that's what I was expecting. That's I wanted the t- in both books. It's more or less two characters at odds with each other, and one is behaving like an asshole. And I'm expecting that they're I'm okay with the mysticism driving them crazy. I'm waiting for the reveal. I'm waiting for the betrayal. I'm waiting for the the psychological twist of the knife. And I got Wikipedia and Star Trek The Next Generation, which, you know, those are both great things, but those yeah, don't yeah. hurt my blood. No, you know what it is? Like, like in the first volume, you've got this conflict between Lake and Dyer, right? Yeah, Dyer's yeah. like, hey, you cannot go. Lake's like, I'm going anyway. And then there's the I mystery must, of what I must. I must go. And then the second, in a way, you're kind of, it's it's just kind of like revealing the backstory. And there's not really a lot of human conflict. You know, it's Dyer and Danforth, and they're kind of trying to figure out what hap- what what what's in the mountains of madness. They're generally like pretty simpatico, and then all of the all of the human conflict is just completely goes out the window. It's just like okay, there was an alien space war, 
that's nice. Let's go deeper into this cave. And see, you know, <laughs> that's like the exact opposite of what I do. Yeah. So, so, so that, that was, that was kind of my big issue. All of the great setup of like, here are the people, here are the players involved. And then, you know, at the end of the first volume, we are now going to go into the mountains of madness. You're like, Oh shit. What's going to happen to you people there. And sort of like, you're going to get some exposition. Like, oh, <laughs> fuck. Here's here's what I tell you. One thing I read about this uh, manga creator is he's done a lot of other Lovecraft, and I do want to know more about the Cthulhu cinematic universe. I do want to see other interpretations. I just fe- and again, I man, I am a sucker for Antarctica and mountain exploration and manga mountain exploration. Go read some of the gods. Like this had all the things I thought were going to make it great, and it's just like. Uh, it was an assembly of really great pieces that couldn't hold it together for me. Yeah, and I, I actually think that's why Lovecraft works much better in a short format when he doesn't have to explain everything. In fact, he doesn't have room to explain everything, and he leaves a lot to the imagination. Or when other writers sort of co-opt the Lovecraft mythos and don't really explain it. You know, they don't feel the need to explain it. They just kind of like show the impact of being exposed to the Necronomicon. Well, have you have you read Tanabe's other interpretations of Lovecraft? I have not, but I am going to. All right. All right, all right, all right. Yes, as a great philosopher, Matthew McConaughey said. Ryan, I have to ask, what are we reading next week? Next week, we are reading a book that I've been introducing for a goddamn long time, and we haven't been able to get to it. We are going to be reading Dementia 21 about a sprightly young nursing home associate who discovers that her her clients are pretty freaking weird. So you know what, Roman, I mean, I know that you are you are probably sick of Japanese manga weirdness, but stay tuned cuz you're just going to get a whole hell of a lot more. That's why I tune in every week. <laughs> <laughs> you tune in every week because you have to, you host it. <laughs> <laughs>